Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The most serious charges yet related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The lead starts right now. Breaking news, the Department of Justice has arrested and charged the head of the far-right Oath Keepers. The leader of the far-right extremist group is charged with seditious conspiracy to use force to undermine the election, and he is not alone. And there's breaking news from the U.S. Supreme Court this afternoon. The Biden administration's nationwide vaccine and testing mandate for big businesses has been blocked, but it may still be allowed to go forward for one particular industry. And... They won't back down. A top U.S. diplomat warns the drumbeat of war is sounding loud from Russia. What will Vladimir Putin do next? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with the politics lead. And for the first time in the January 6th investigation, the U.S. Justice Department is using the rare charge of seditious conspiracy related to the insurrection at the Capitol. Prosecutors indicted 11 defendants on this charge, including the leader of the Oath Keepers, the violence-prone far-right extremist group. Prosecutors say that the defendants opposed by force the execution of the laws governing the transfer of presidential power. Video from January 6th shows a group in Oath Keepers insignia, many wearing helmets, moving in a single file, tactical formation, through the crowd. And according to the indictment, the defendants conspired beginning in November 2020. They recruited members and affiliates. They organized training and paramilitary combat tactics. They staged fully armed teams. They called a quick reaction force just outside Washington, D.C. And then they stormed the Capitol with paramilitary gear, weapons, supplies, including knives, batons, camouflaged combat uniforms, even radio equipment. Quoting from the indictment, quote, reaching and attempting to take control of the Capitol grounds and building on January 6th in an effort to prevent, hinder, and delay the certification of the Electoral College vote, unquote. As CNN's Paula Reed reports for us now, seditious conspiracy is a rarely used charge and a major step by the U.S. Justice Department. Today, the Justice Department escalating its efforts to prosecute those responsible for January 6th, charging Oath Keepers leader, Stuart Rhodes, along with 10 others, with seditious conspiracy related to the attack on the Capitol. It's the first time federal prosecutors have used the sedition charge after bringing more than 700 cases related to the insurrection. But prosecutors have long signaled that they were considering using the rarely applied section of federal law. Rhodes is the most high-profile individual charged in the investigation so far. Court documents filed today lay out a wide-ranging plot to storm the Capitol and disrupt the certification of the election. On November 5th, Rhodes allegedly urged his followers to refuse to accept the election results, writing in a signal message, We aren't getting through this without a civil war. Too late for that? Prepare your mind, body, and spirit. 
In December, Rhodes wrote of the Electoral College certification, there is no standard political or legal way out of this. According to federal prosecutors, on his way to D.C. on January 3rd, Rhodes allegedly bought an AR platform rifle and other firearms equipment, including sights, mounts, triggers, slings, and other firearms attachments in Texas. The next day, he allegedly bought more firearms equipment in Mississippi, including sights, mounts, an optic plate, and a magazine. Rhodes, a former Army paratrooper who went on to earn a law degree from Yale, did not enter the Capitol on January 6th, but Oath Keepers were seen forcing their way into the building in a military stack formation. The new indictment also reveals the group had three quick reaction forces from three states, Arizona, North Carolina and Florida, to rush into D.C. if needed. The Justice Department alleges teams were prepared to rapidly transport firearms and other weapons into Washington, D.C. in support of operations aimed at using force to stop the lawful transfer of presidential power. The indictment also reveals that Oathkeeper Thomas Caldwell, arrested in January, claimed that he took a reconnaissance trip to D.C. prior to January 6th. Rhodes was arrested at his home in Texas today. He has previously denied involvement with the January 6th attack. Rhodes has not publicly responded to today's charges. He is expected to make his initial appearance in federal court in Texas in the coming days. Jake. And Paula, when you read uh, the criminal complaint, it makes clear prosecutors say they plan to continue uh, violence well after January 6th. Yeah, absolutely. The indictment alleges Rhodes referred to the insurrection as nothing compared to what is coming. And Jake, in the weeks after the insurrection, he allegedly spent over $17,000 on weapons, equipment and ammunition. Then, around Inauguration Day, he allegedly told his associates to organize local militias to oppose the Biden administration. And another member allegedly said, after this, if nothing happens, it's war, Civil War 2.0. Jake? All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Let's talk about this with our legal experts. Um, Carrie, let me start with you. Your take on this rarely used seditious conspiracy charge against 11 people all affiliated with the, the Oath Keepers. Well, Jake, now we're starting to get somewhere in terms of this conspiracy investigation by the Justice Department. In my view, seditious conspiracy is exactly the right charge for the gravity of the events that took place on January 6th because it involves a conspiracy by force, which is a key part, to prevent, hinder, delay the execution of any law of the United States. And in the case of January 6th, it involved both constitutional provisions as well as statutory provisions, the counting of the votes, um, and Congress's ability to facilitate the transfer of power. So a huge indictment by the Justice Department, important also in terms of the practice of the Justice Department, that they are speaking through their, through their indictment, through their charging document itself, laying out all the facts in that court pleading. And, and Shan, I mean, the, the indictment is stark. Uh, these individuals allegedly brought weapons to D.C. They they marched in a stack formation. Uh, one went one way, one went the other. Uh, they joined the mob. They breached the Capitol grounds. They attacked police. Could prosecutors have charged these 11 defendants with, with something that's like just plain sedition rather than sed, uh, seditious conspiracy? 
Uh, they could have, uh, but the conspiracy charge makes a lot of sense given that they were working with each other and planning it. It also gives the prosecutors a much uh, broader net by using conspiracy. You can net people who may or may not have been there. And we remember at that press conference, Attorney General Garland said whether or not people were there, they could still be held responsible. So this is a good example of that. These sorts of extremist groups like to fashion themselves as being paramilitary militia, and now they are bearing the consequences of staging a military-style obstruction of Congress. And, and Carrie, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, seemed to hint at this indictment in a speech just last week uh, before the January 6th anniversary. Take a listen. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. Now, these guys were present that day, but he's suggesting that there are going to be other charges for people who weren't necessarily at the Capitol. Do you anticipate seditious conspiracy charges against other individuals? I think it's possible, but what's important about what Attorney General Garland said was the progression of the investigation itself. So over 700 people had been charged already, some of them with lower level crimes or trespassing or the the violent activity that they engaged in, but not at the level of seditious conspiracy. Now we're seeing the investigation a year later mature and we're seeing the results of the investigation that has been conducted to date, which includes clearly extensive review of evidence and communications, uh, probably sources and confidential informants as well, who have all been assisting the Justice Department and helping to gather that information to produce this indictment of these individuals in particular. And the other aspect that's really stark in this charging document is the emphasis on these were individuals who were intending to use violence. They were intending to use force. And so the materials that Paula was describing in her report with respect to ammunition and gear and other types of tactical weaponry, these were all things that indicated to the investigators that this was intended to be violent. And and, uh, Shan, a lot of individuals on the right uh, have been talking about for a, a year or more Uh, If this was an insurrection, if this was sedition, then how come nobody's been charged with anything like that? Take a listen to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, This is a January 6th, the the one-year anniversary. It's an insult to people when you say it's an insurrection and then a year later, nobody has been charged with that. Do these charges put that sort of criticism to rest, you think? Uh, yes, I think they put those sort of criticisms to the lie that they are, and uh, that's really not the insulting part. I personally think the insulting part is trying to whitewash what happened on the 6th. But this is an indictment. It's got facts, like we've discussed, and it points clearly to the fact that this was sedition. It wasn't just people trespassing or wandering in to the Capitol. And certainly the intriguing part here is now that we've indicted the leadership level of these kinds of groups, whether or not they will be better situated to know what kinds of communications, what kind of planning might have happened with lawmakers, people in the Trump inner circle, and you know, to what level it floated up to former President Trump himself. 
And Carrie, a lot of the individuals in the Capitol that day were not part of the conspiracy. They weren't part of the, the planning for, for months uh, to stop the, the counting of electoral votes. But they got swept up in the moment, and they, too, were trying to stop the counting. Uh, I can't speak to the state of mind of every individual in the Capitol, but it seems quite clear that's why, that, that's the reason the group was there, to stop the counting of the electoral votes. Does the fact that these individuals are being charged with seditious conspiracy mean that possibly other individuals who were more spontaneously part of the, that group uh, might get charged with sedition, e- even if they didn't conspire to do so? Well, it's possible because one of the things that um, is apparent in this indictment is that some of the individuals charged had previously been charged with lesser crimes. So the Justice Department does reserve the opportunity in the future to be able to come back to former uh, people who have already been charged with lesser crimes and now charge them um, with more substantial crimes. But it does seem that this particular indictment with this set of seditious conspiracy charges is tailored to this particular network of individuals who were plotting for months who had coordinated efforts to bring weapons and other gear to Washington, who staged these and coordinated the staging of these uh, potential quick response teams. And so it does seem to be that they, they are focusing these more serious charges on individuals who were plotting to do this activity to prevent the transfer of power by force, as opposed to individuals who happened to be there and found themselves caught up in this conspiracy. Shen Wu, Carrie Cordero, thanks to both of you. More breaking news. The U.S. Supreme Court delivering a body blow to President Biden's push to contain COVID. What does the ruling mean for big businesses? What does it mean for your safety? Plus, rallying the troops as hospitals are strained with patients and workers are calling out sick. The government is trying to send in the military to help. Stay with us. Breaking news in our health lead and a big decision that is a body blow to the Biden White House. The Supreme Court has blocked President Biden's nationwide vaccine and testing mandate for businesses over 100 employees, though in a separate case, the court is allowing a vaccine mandate for certain healthcare workers who work for health organizations that get federal dollars. They're allowing that to go into effect. Let's discuss with CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic and Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Joan, the vaccine mandate decision split along ideological lines fairly predictably with liberal justices Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan dissenting. Uh, What does the ruling mean to you? You know, uh, as you said, we were we were expecting this kind of split. You know, you had uh, the majority in an unsigned opinion stress how broad this uh, OSHA mandate is. Uh, at one point, they say it would cover lifeguards and linemen the same way as uh, medics and and other personnel. They just tried to talk about how sweeping it was and that the, any kind of exemptions were just uh, were, were so minor. Liberal justice is really stressed, Jake, how much this imperils the federal government's COVID response. So in that respect, uh, I think that this split is predictable. But I do want to stress something that happened on the conservative side. You had three justices break off in a concurring statement, Justices Gorsuch, Thomas and Alito, looking at a more muscular approach to curtailing federal regulators. So not only would their approach to what the Biden administration do here, did, tried to do here, affect COVID you know, precautions and uh, any kind of uh, way to end this de- deadly pandemic. It could also 
influence. If a majority had taken this approach, other regulations that affect health and safety, environment. So uh, we did see a split in that way. But I have to say, in terms of exactly what's happening in America right now, it really hamstrings the Biden administration. And Jeffrey, the the three liberal justices issued a blistering dissent in this case, quote, in the face of a still raging pandemic, this court tells the agency charged with protecting worker safety that it may not do so in all the workplaces needed. As disease and death continue to mount, this court tells the agency that it cannot respond in the most effective way possible, unquote. They go on to say the court is putting American workers in grave danger. How unusual is that sort of dissent? This is a very passionate dissent. As you say, Jake, the liberals emphasized that the regulation could save over 6,500 lives and prevent over 250,000 hospitalizations. And they ended very dramatically saying the court is not wise. When we are wise, we defer to uh, experts who actually understand the health issues. And here we're substituting uh, the court's views for that of the experts. But the point that Joan made is really extremely important that many people said the biggest effect of the retirement of justice Uh, the replacement of Justice Ginsburg by Justice Barrett would be a completely different approach to the power of the federal government to regulate health and safety. And this is the first time we're seeing it dramatically come through. And as Joan suggested, the three most conservative justices suggested they would strike down many, many other regulations in the future, dramatically restricting the ability of the federal government to regulate health and safety. So this may be just the first salvo in in a dramatic clash about uh, different visions of the scope of the federal government, and it came in a pretty important case involving uh, vaccines and COVID. And Joan, the Biden administration had asked that if the court ruled against the vaccine mandate for for large businesses, that it at least leave in place requirements for masking and frequent testing. Um, Why did the majority rule against that as well? What what did they say? Uh, You know, they really brushed off that option, really dismissed it as if it even was an option. Uh, The majority opinion referred to the fact that the administration's requirement says if you don't have a, a, a policy in place for vaccinations, you should at least require weekly testing and mask wearing. And it was interesting the way uh, the majority just cast that. They said that's that's presented as an exception. Kind of they put the they put that word in quote marks and acted as if that wasn't even even a reality. Throughout the whole thing, all they were concerned about is the mandate, referring to it as a vaccine mandate, and that's what they they targeted here. And Jeffrey, there's a separate case. The court is allowing a vaccine mandate for certain healthcare workers that the government estimates will cover more than 10 million people. Explain why they're allowing that mandate and not the other one. It's a really important distinction. It all turns on the meaning of a word. Uh, In that case, uh, the federal government has the power to regulate the administration of Medicare and Medicaid funds. And five justices, Justices Roberts and Kavanaugh joining the liberals, said that the administration includes threat to healthcare workers and it could be a threat to workers if they don't get vaccinated and that could also harm patients. So the whole difference between the regulation that was upheld, which affects 17 million people, and the one that was struck down, which would have affected 82 million people, was just a single word chosen by Congress. And the conservatives say Congress has to speak really clearly when it's authorizing regulation. 
And here uh, they thought the word administration was uh, strong enough to cover the matter. Of course, the, the most conservative justices disagreed with that, suggesting they would have struck down this regulation too. This, this just suggests there's going to be a lot of parsing of individual words when it comes to congressional statutes. And if Congress really wants to authorize regulatory authority in the future, it's going to have to be very, very precise, uh, which Congress these days, as we know, is not very inclined to do, which means that in practice, it's going to be much harder to regulate health in the workplace in America. All right, Jeffrey Rosen and Joan Biskupic, thanks to both of you. Coming up, free masks, free tests, the latest push by the Biden administration to combat COVID. But is it too little too late? That's next. In our health lead, President Biden today promising that help is on the way. More COVID tests, free high quality masks and a deployment of military personnel to shore up some of the worst-hit hospitals in six hard-hit states. Good morning, More than 151,000 patients in the U.S. are hospitalized with COVID right now. That is a high for this pandemic. As CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, the Biden administration is hoping its latest efforts will relieve the crush at hospitals, but critics argue this is all too little too late. When you need something done, call in the military. Military medical teams now heading to six states to help in hospitals. And next week we'll announce, we'll announce how we are making high quality masks available to American people, the American people for free. The president also just pledged another half a billion free tests, but the administration still hasn't distributed the half billion announced before Christmas. We're on track to roll out a website next week where you can order free tests shipped to your home. It is a matter of urgency for us. Should we have done that sooner? We are doing it. But should we have done it sooner? We are doing it. Average new confirmed COVID-19 infections now nearing 800,000 a day. That number has more than doubled in just the past two weeks. Average daily death toll also rising, but that could be the lagging impact of the Delta surge, says the CDC director who points to a preprint California study showing hospitalization and death rates are indeed much lower with the Omicron variant. The data in this study remain consistent with what we are seeing from Omicron in other countries, including South Africa and the UK, and provide some understanding of what we can expect over the coming weeks as cases are predicted to peak in this country. There are already signs of a plateau in parts of the Northeast. Here in Boston, for example, uh, for the first time in quite several weeks, we have actually no increase in the number of hospitalizations from COVID from yesterday to today. But hospitals still stretched in Massachusetts and elsewhere. In all these states, remaining ICU capacity is less than 15 percent. And schools? I'm deeply concerned about schools over the next two weeks. I'm deeply concerned because of staff outreach on this. Tomorrow, Minneapolis public schools move to online only for at least a couple of weeks. Now, today, both the president and the vice president said that they understand some people's frustration at where we are right now in this pandemic. But they clearly have frustrations of their own. President Biden basically said, listen, no matter what I do, as long as tens of millions of people still refuse to get vaccinated, we are going to continue to have what he calls needless deaths. Jake. Nick Watt, thanks so much. Uh, joining us now, 
Live to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, the Biden administration is sending a new wave of military medical teams to try to help hospitals in six states. Healthcare systems nationwide are facing staffing shortages. Are military teams a last resort in a medical crisis? Have you, have you ever seen anything like this before? Well, we've seen it uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years, right, Jake? I mean, you know, even since Thanksgiving, there's been 800 uh, military personnel deployed in 24 different states trying to provide relief, triage patients, and decompress emergency rooms. I mean, that when hospitals become overwhelmed, that's the issue. The emergency rooms are full. They don't have beds uh, for, for patients to go. You can't take new patients in. They can help with some of those basic things, typically freeing up resources, staff, to be able to do some of the more life-saving or critical sort of jobs that, uh, that these patients are requiring. So, yeah, I've seen it. Typically, used to seeing it in, you know, in the middle of conflict zones. We saw these types of things uh, happening after Hurricane Katrina, for example, after natural disasters. But over the last couple of years, seen it quite a bit uh, here, here in the States. What kinds of things do these teams do? How do they work? Well, a lot of times they have some medical training, so they're really focused on trying to, you know, within an emergency setting or urgent care setting, triage patients, really determining uh, who's going to need resources, who's going to need a hospital bed, who's not, trying to take some of that pressure off. You can see some of the states where this is going, where, where military assistance is going. Uh, New Jersey is, is one of those places, and, and here's how the CEO of one of the hospitals in New Jersey described the help this might provide. We are getting 23 people in uniform for 30 days. We don't know exactly what clinical skills or non-clinical skills, by the way, which are also very important, food service, radiology techs, environmental services. We need everything right now because we're hurting in almost every area in the hospital. Patient transport, radiology, you know, you name it. Show you quickly what's happening in New Jersey where you just heard that doctor. You know, we know these trends in the country overall. The white line is the United States still going up, but uh, New Jersey went up, uh, you can see, more significantly, but maybe starting to plateau there, which is why he, I think he's talking about the next few weeks, hopefully getting some relief after that. Should people find this development with these military teams alarming or reassuring? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, I mean, this is not where you want to be. This is not where we need it to be. I mean, they do. I've worked with many of these teams in, in various places around the world, and they're incredible teams. And yet you wish you didn't have to rely on them in a situation like this. So um, I think that they should be reassured that at the fact that the numbers are going down and that people are going to be able to get more care than they otherwise would uh, if these teams hadn't been there. But it is, it is uh, sort of tough to imagine. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when we first saw some of these military teams being deployed, it was a bit jarring to see that wide level of deployment within the United States. So I wouldn't say that it's reassuring. What's reassuring is that hopefully the numbers are, start, are starting to come down. We're seeing some worst case scenarios play out in places like California where, there, where the state public health department now says healthcare workers who test positive for COVID but are asymptomatic can report to work without a quarantine. What does the science say about that? I get that they're desperate out there, but what does the science say? Well, the science is pretty clear that people who can, can transmit even if they don't have symptoms. I mean, that was a learning that we got in the spring of 2020. Uh, you know, you, you, in fact, you could be most uh, contagious at a time when you don't have symptoms or before you develop symptoms. So this is a last resort to try and keep the healthcare system from sort of, you know, falling apart in, in California. I think that's why they're doing this. A couple of caveats that they're putting in as well. First of all, they're going to try and get any other personnel to come in to, to backfill people who, who may have tested positive. They have to wear 
full, full protective personal gear N95 masks. And also, you know, the people who are coming in that may have tested positive or asymptomatic are largely being told to, to take care of COVID positive patients. So at least they're in the same vicinity as patients who already have tested positive. But this, again, just like you asked about the military, this is not the situation we want to be in, where we have to make these sorts of decisions. It's not the sort of situation we need to be in. So much of this could have been prevented. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. A warning, the drum beats for war coming from Russia growing louder. How can the U.S. and NATO curb Putin's ambitions? Stay with us. Topping our worldly, the drumbeat of war is sounding louder. Those words from one of America's senior diplomats come after talks between NATO and Russia failed to de-escalate rising tensions. And as Moscow ramps up its threats that it will invade Ukraine again. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us from Moscow. But I want to start with CNN's Alex Marquardt live from Brussels, where NATO is headquartered. Alex, what are U.S. officials saying now that these discussions with Russia are over? Well, Jake, essentially now that we have to wait and see, we just heard from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, who said that we are still at a moment where diplomacy can work. They simply do not know what is going to happen next. And Sullivan said that the U.S. is prepared for multiple different uh, possibilities. Now, the meetings did wrap up today in Vienna at the Organization for the Security and Cooperation Europe, or the OSCE. And we heard a stark warning from the U.S. ambassador to the OSCE. Take a listen. We're facing a crisis in European security. Uh, The drumbeat of war is sounding loud and the rhetoric has gotten rather shrill. We have to take this very seriously. We have to prepare for the eventuality that there could be an escalation. So there's no doubt that there is some concern over the fear, over the frustration and anger uh, from the Russian side in, in the wake of these meetings. Uh, what happens next remains to be seen. Uh, Sullivan said that U.S. intelligence indicates uh, that Russia has not yet made a decision whether they uh, do plan to uh, invade. But there was a warning from Sullivan that the Russians could create a pretext, an excuse uh, to invade Ukraine and that he would be sharing intelligence about uh, what that could look like uh, in, in, in the next uh, few hours, in the next 24 hours. Uh, but what's going to happen now is officials from these meetings will be going back to their capitals, talking to each other. The U.S. is going to be talking to its European allies, as well as to the Russians, to try to keep these conversations going, to try to get the Russians to de-escalate and pull away from the Ukrainian border. Jake. And Matthew, there, there's growing concern that a diplomatic solution to resolve this crisis of Russia about to invade Ukraine, that there cannot, it cannot be reached. What, what are Russian officials saying? Well, I mean, Russian officials can barely um, contain their disappointment. I mean, one of them is talking about the catastrophic consequences that could follow uh, the fact that these negotiations have come to nothing in, uh, in Geneva, Brussels and Vienna. Uh, the, form, the, uh, the deputy foreign minister saying that, look, the US and NATO are just not ready to meet our, you know, Russia's uh, key demands. It's also been pushback on some of the calls from the US for Russia to de-escalate. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, saying we hear already demands not only to withdraw troops from the border with Ukraine, as they say, but also to get these troops back to their quarters, back to their barracks. 
I don't think we need to explain, Sergei Lavrov said, how absolutely unacceptable such demands are. And of course, we will not even discuss them. Of course, the Russian position is that these troops are, for the most part, uh, carrying out exercises on Russian territory. And they don't like the United States or anyone else telling them that they should uh, be placed uh, somewhere else. And so it, it just gives you a flavour of, of the kind of, you know, uh, uh, attitude that Russian officials are displaying at the moment. When it, we've got to the end of this very intensive round of, of, of negotiations. They're not happy at all. They see no reason, in their words, for optimism. Alex, the U.S. and NATO call Russia's demands to resolve this conflict uh, non-starters. Is there any hope for a compromise at all? There is, Jake. Uh, The U.S. and NATO rejected the two main demands by Russia, but they're hoping that other uh, areas uh, can be can have progress made. And that's that includes uh, things like uh, weapons in Europe, missile systems, uh, nuclear weapons and arms control, generally speaking, is an area where both the Russians and the U.S. are eager uh, to have discussions, as well as conversations about uh, military exercises and and better communication over those and, and more transparency. And so NATO is hoping that the combination of progress in those areas, as well as the threats that Europe and the U.S. are making over economic sanctions, trade restrictions, uh, more military aid for Ukraine and Eastern Europe, should Russia invade, that that can pressure Russia into de-escalating and and pulling back those forces uh, from the Ukrainian border. But the U.S. and Europe have repeatedly said that diplomacy cannot happen uh, without de-escalation. Jake. Alex Marquardt in Brussels, Matthew Chance in Moscow. Thanks to both of you. The world's number one tennis star on center court and at the center of a political storm down under. Will Australia serve him with an eviction notice? Stay with us. In our sports lead today, Novak Djokovic is, quote, playing by his own rules. That from the number four tennis player in the world. The unvaccinated nine-time Australian Open champ hit the practice court today after being picked as the tournament's number one seed as a seemingly never-ending volley between the Australian government and Djokovic continues over his visa status and lying on official documents. As CNN's Phil Black reports for us now, Australians are wondering if this is about more than one unvaccinated tennis star. Novak Djokovic is training every day on centre court, defiantly implying he'll still be here when the Australian Open begins. For now, the tournament's organisers have to assume he will be too. We start with our number one seed for the tournament, Novak Djokovic, on line number one. The competition draw has lined up Djokovic to play a fellow Serb in the opening round. But will it happen? The Australian Prime Minister's position... Don't ask me. These are personal ministerial powers able to be exercised by Minister Hawke and I don't propose to make any further comment at this time. Immigration Minister Alex Hawke says he's considering using his personal power to cancel Djokovic's visa. He's been considering it all week, ever since a judge freed Djokovic from immigration detention and restored his visa, ruling the unvaccinated player was treated unfairly by border officials. It was about process. The court went down the... The, the path of process, but uh, the facts remain the same. Um, so uh, he still has, the minister still has the discretion to ask him to leave. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it up to the minister as to whether he does that or not. Government leaders are ducking questions on this because the political stakes are high. A decision to cancel the visa once more must stand up under immigration law. Get it wrong 
and Djokovic could successfully appeal again, humiliating the government in the courtroom and every time he appears on set accord. For a government that prides itself on border security, this is not a good look, is it? Especially with an election coming up. Oh, I... My gosh, if this is what the election is fought on, then Australians um, have missed a whole range of other issues. The government knows there's little public sympathy for Novak Djokovic, but the clock is ticking. Failing to act before the Australian Open begins could escalate this saga and inflict a significant political cost. Jake, it is now Friday morning here in Melbourne. That means, including the weekend, there are only three days before the start of play in the Australian Open. So this is really turning into a time crunch, especially for Novak Djokovic, because even if the government moves to deport him pretty swiftly today, it is increasingly difficult to see how he can successfully challenge that in court and then still be clear in a position and ready to start playing for the title early next week. Jake. Phil Black in Melbourne, thank you so much. Appreciate it. For months, we've been hearing people who downplay or lie about the insurrection defend their claims by saying, well, how come nobody's really been charged with sedition or insurrection? Well, here are the charges. Breaking news out of the Justice Department. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, President Biden up on Capitol Hill today trying to convince Democrats to pass election reform by changing one key rule of the Senate. But it's what Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona said today that might be more consequential. Plus, a deadly year for police. Officers targeted, ambushed, and killed across the country, leaving their families grieving. What is driving this spike? But we start with breaking news. Just over a year since the January 6th insurrection, and for the first time, the U.S. Justice Department is charging January 6th rioters with seditious conspiracy for their efforts to stop the counting of electoral votes. Prosecutors say... The leader of the extremist far-right group, the Oath Keepers, and 10 other defendants conspired to stop, with force, the execution of laws governing the peaceful transfer of presidential power. The criminal complaint details a conspiracy that began in November 2020, included paramilitary training and the purchase of deadly weapons, reconnaissance, and armed militia force staged just outside D.C., and further plans even after the January 6th plot failed. Let's bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider and Ryan Nobles up on Capitol Hill. Jessica, let's start with this new indictment. Seditious conspiracy charges filed against 11 defendants, all affiliated with the Oath Keepers, a far-right extremist group. How significant is this specific charge? Very significant, Jake. This is the most serious charge that we're seeing resulting from this massive investigation that's been ongoing for a year now. Uh, Seditious conspiracy, it carries 20 years maximum in prison. And put in plain English, the defendants here are accused of conspiring to use violence or force to stop a government proceeding. Here, what was supposed to be the peaceful transfer of power. And as the DOJ lays out for the first time here, this extended beyond on January 6th, well into Inauguration Day. So some of this video is video that the DOJ references where these members of the Oath Keepers, they actually wore military gear and they they traveled in tactical formation, something that DOJ refers to as the stack here. And this plot actually started months before January 6th. They communicated over encrypted app. One member of the Oath Keepers also allegedly took a reconnaissance mission to D.C. They're also accused of stockpiling weapons as part of these teams that they're referring to as 
quick reaction force teams, QRFs. They even stockpiled some of their weapons in the days leading up to January 6th, allegedly at a hotel in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of D.C., just a few miles from the Capitol. So the DOJ is talking about those QRF teams in this from the indictment. I'll read it for you. While certain Oath Keeper members and affiliates inside of Washington, D.C. breached the Capitol grounds and building, others remained stationed just outside of the city in QRF teams. The QRF teams were prepared to rapidly transport firearms and other weapons into Washington, D.C. in support of operations aimed at using force to stop the lawful transfer of presidential power. And the DOJ indicates here that this plot continues. Stuart Rhodes, who was arrested today, allegedly bought almost $18,000 in weapons and ammunition leading up to January 20th. Jake, he was calling for members of the Oath Keepers to form militias to stop and commit violence against the Biden administration. And Ryan, these right-wing groups are also an important part of the investigation by the select committee investigating the January 6th attack. Tell us more about the committee's focus on the role played by these far right-wing groups. Oh, Jake, there's no doubt it is very important. And from the very beginning, the January 6th Select Committee has been very interested in the role that the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, other right-wing extremist groups played in creating violence and chaos here uh, on January 6th. But what this evidence revealed here today uh, one of the reasons it's going to be so important for the committee's investigation is for two reasons. One, the committee has been insistent on creating a narrative of exactly what happened here on January 6th and, and making sure that it's clear to the American people just how deadly and violent this day was. Uh, and of course, there have been uh, individuals that have attempted to whitewash the events of January 6th, suggesting perhaps that it wasn't an armed insurrection. You know, this evidence obviously proves otherwise. And then the other part is the pre planning of all of this. This is a, a very important part of the committee's uh, investigation. This evidence showing that there was a great deal of pre-planning leading up to January 6th, Jake. And Jessica, we're now more than a year removed from the January 6th attack. The Justice Department is noting the extensive multi-state investigation that led to this indictment. Yeah, you know, this is a massive investigation nationwide, but specifically for this indictment, they had to use law enforcement from several different states. Stuart Rhodes, for example, was arrested today in Texas, but the other Oath Keeper members, they lived in other states, including Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio. So law enforcement from around the country, they have been working this case and the others, hundreds of others, uh, for the past year, Jake. And Ryan, more breaking news. We're learning of new subpoenas just issued by the January 6th committee. Yeah, that's right. This, the committee now demanding that four major social media companies, uh, that would be Alphabet, which owns YouTube, Meta, which owns Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit, hand over information that they say is vital to their investigation. The committee asked these groups to voluntarily hand over this information over the summer. They say now that they've been given an inadequate response from these social media giants. The committee now forcefully asking for that information as they believe it is an important part for them to get to the bottom of what happened here on January 6th. Jake. Jessica Schneider, Ryan Nobles, thanks to both of you. Let's talk about this. Uh, Nia Malika, before these charges were announced, Republican Senator Marco Rubio was on the Senate floor. I want to be clear here. He condemned the January 6th attack. He said it was a terrible thing. The criminals should go, should, you know, there should be consequence for the criminals, etc. But he also seemed to downplay the seriousness of what happened that day with this comment. Take a listen. You're not going to convince at least more, most normal and sane people that our government last year was almost overthrown by a guy wearing a Viking hat and Speedos. 
Do you think these charges that illustrate armed individuals, paramilitary training, uh, a, a conspiracy to stop the counting of electoral votes, do you think this will stop individuals downplaying the seriousness of that day? Listen, I think it will for some members of Congress. Members of Congress uh, like Marco Rubio, he, of course, is up for uh, re-election this year. He wants to uh, sound as closely aligned uh, with Donald Trump as he can. So I think that uh, is sort of where he is coming from. But you have had other uh, members of Congress essentially say this was just, you know, sort of a spontaneous, non-threatening uh, gathering, a, a tourist event, if you will. Uh, well, that, well, if it was a tourist event, well, why were people cowering uh, in their offices? Why were uh, members of Congress reaching out to Donald Trump saying, call off uh, this riot? These are your people. Uh, make an announcement and call it off. They were in fear uh, for their lives because we what, of what we all saw on television, uh, the gallows that were hung there, folks with Confederate flags. Uh, so it was very much a violent and chaotic scene uh, with a purpose, and that was uh, to interfere uh, with the certification of Joe Biden's uh, election. And these details of, of the case that this F, that the FBI uh, is is lying out now, lay, laying out uh, with these recent charges, certainly speaks to how complex and serious a threat it was on January 6th. Jennifer, do you believe the Justice Department is trying to send a signal by charging these 11 defendants with seditious conspiracy, which is, of course, a much graver charge than a lot of the individuals have been charged with so far? Well, the Justice Department does more than send signals with this, Jake. It's speaking out loud. It is saying that what happened in the months leading up to January 6th, and remember, this indictment charges from November 2020 all the way through January of 2021, this was sedition. This was not just breaking into the Capitol. This was not just assaulting police officers. This was not even just obstructing a proceeding. This was sedition. This was actually interfering with the lawful transfer of power as set out in the Constitution. And if it's sedition for these guys, you better believe it's also sedition for people who took part in other plots or this plot spread further out to actually stop that transition of power from happening. So the fact that they have labeled it as such through this indictment means to me, finally we know that the Justice Department is serious and they're going after other people for this as well. And Phil, prosecutors say these Oath Keepers were training, recruiting, and gathering guns, ammo, gear before the attack on the Capitol. Uh, Are you surprised the FBI didn't stop them or, or catch them before this happened? No, I'm not, because if you look at what we're talking about in the days before, you're talking about a political rally sponsored by the president of the United States. So let's say, Jake, you go to a hearing in the weeks before the January 6th event, a hearing that includes both Republicans and Democrats, Republicans who will be favoring President Trump. In the hearing, you say we have informants or we have technical coverage, meaning you're reading people's phones, their texts or emails of political rallies in the United States. I wouldn't want to do that hearing, Jake. I'd do it today. I wouldn't have wanted to do it on January 5th. I think that would have been explosive before we realized exactly what was going on here. Nia Malika, given the, the detailed plot in this indictment, given the seriousness of the charge, seditious conspiracy, might that give House Republicans pause about killing the January 6th committee 
if they do, in fact, take control after the midterms? No, I think they will absolutely kill this uh, this investigation, this committee, uh, because this, that's what Donald Trump would want them to do. I mean, that is uh, who they are taking orders from. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, should he be speaker, uh, he will want to remain speaker and he will want to meet, remain in good standing uh, with Donald Trump. And the committee certainly knows that uh, they have a timeline. They are working under enormous uh, pressure. They've had enormous success so far. They've interviewed something like 350 people. Uh, most of the people that they have subpoenaed have cooperated uh, with those subpoenas. They are obviously trying to talk to sitting members of Congress who have so far uh, said that they won't comply. Uh, but so far, they have made a tremendous amount of ground in terms of trying to lay out a full narrative of what was going on that day. And Phil, so far, the FBI has arrested 700 people uh, related to the insurrection. They, they say they're trying to arrest, seeking to arrest around 200 more. Would you expect more charges related to seditious conspiracy? I would, just just as a numbers game. If you look at that, you, you talked about 700, maybe reaching 900 plus people. Only 11 uh, are in the case today. If you assume that there's going to be another 890 plus or more, 900 plus arrested, you've got to believe that nobody else was involved in a conspiracy like that. That beggars belief. I've got to believe there are more cases like it. It's a reason we haven't seen this is they've got 700 cases already to prosecute. And this one is so much more complicated to prove. We'll see more of this, Jake. I'm pretty sure of it. Jennifer, does this signal you think that the Justice Department is going to be pursuing more extremist groups in relation to the insurrection? I think so, for sure. I mean, the Oath Keepers was only one of the groups that was involved. We know the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, or all sorts of other groups. I think they're looking at all of them. I think they're looking at their links together. And I think they're looking at what they did with people in the White House, in Congress, and others who were involved potentially in this broader plot to stop the transfer of power. I think they're looking at all of it now, so we'll have to see where it goes. All right. Thanks to all of you. A really rough 24-hour period for President Joe Biden, uh, including not getting what he wanted after a trip down Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, thanks to Democratic Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, and the Supreme Court delivering the Biden administration a big loss, blocking the nationwide vaccine mandate. The Secretary of Labor is going to join us to respond ahead. We have some breaking news now. CNN can report that California Governor Gavin Newsom has decided to overrule parole for Sirhan Sirhan. Sirhan Sirhan, of course, is the man who assassinated Senator Robert Kennedy in 1968. Governor Newsom overruling that decision by the California Parole Board. Sirhan Sirhan will remain in prison. In our politics lead, President Joe Biden arrived on Capitol Hill this afternoon vowing to keep fighting for election reform. Just moments after Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona reiterated, reiterated that she will not support the so-called nuclear option to get rid of the 60-vote rule to stop a filibuster in order to pass the election legislation. And now, as CNN's Fomatingly reports for us, it appears Senate Democrats are left spearheading yet another futile effort just to get on the same page. The honest-to-God answer is, I don't know whether we can get this done. For President Biden, a day of roadblocks and setbacks. A presidential trip to Capitol Hill for a voting reform bill doomed to fail. As long as I have a breath in me, as long as I'm in the White House, as long as I'm engaged at all, I'm going to be fighting 
to change the way these legislatures have moving. Vaccine requirements on large employers viewed as critical to the White House COVID response efforts blocked by the Supreme Court. President Biden will be calling on and will continue to call on businesses to immediately join those, those who have already stepped up. Even as a separate requirement for health care workers was given the green light. Rulings that came at a moment of peak exhaustion with a pandemic in its third year. I know we're all frustrated as we enter this new year. Omicron variant is causing millions of cases and record hospitalizations. All as Senate Democrats press toward votes on a sweeping voting reform measure. And every senator will be faced with the choice of whether or not to pass this legislation to protect our democracy. No clear path over unified Republican opposition. Nobody in this country is buying the fake hysteria that democracy will die unless Democrats get total control. Two key centrist Democrats, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, both supportive of the voting measures. While I continue to support these bills. But both also still opposed to unilateral changes to Senate rules to do away with the filibuster. I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. A reality that throws cold water on the week Biden went all in on passing the voting measures. Do you want to be the side, the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be in the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be in the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? But Biden's speech served to only more deeply entrench GOP opposition, both to the bill and to his rhetoric. I've known, liked, and personally respected Joe Biden for many years. I did not recognize the man at the podium yesterday. Leaving Democratic leaders barreling toward a doomed effort to change Senate rules, arguing that state GOP efforts to change voting laws have forced the so-called nuclear option to the forefront. In the coming days, we will confront this sobering question. Jake, the effort may be doomed, but President Biden is not giving up. We are now told from sources that Senators Sinema and Manchin will be heading to the White House to meet with President Biden at some point this evening. The topic will be voting rights. And while it's very clear where they stand on filibuster changes right now, what is unclear is what are the next steps, both for voting rights, but also for the president's broader agenda. Obviously, it's a midterm year now. Most things look stuck. And those are the two critical senators. They'll be meeting with President Biden tonight. Jake. Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Let's discuss this with Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. Uh, Senator, what was Biden's message at today's lunch with uh, Democrats? Well, Jake, it's always wonderful to be with you. And I will say I think the president was very powerful today. He was clear as somebody who has uh, who loves the Senate uh, that uh, he is coming to this decision about changing the rules uh, very uh, seriously and reluctantly based on based what is happening right now. Donald Trump trying to take over the the uh, uh, the election process and stop the uh, election process with violence on January 6th, the strategy across the country, which is totally partisan, including in Michigan, not one Democrat. This is not a bipartisan effort on uh, voting reforms. This is a Republican effort to take away people's freedom to vote. And so we're at a crossroads at a country, as a country. And I really believe that. I really believe that we're at a point where folks are going to look back in history about where were you when there was a strategy 
by Republicans, to, whether it's by violence or by changing uh, laws in states, an effort to take away people's freedom to vote in the United States of America. And that's what's happening. Senator Sinema says that getting rid of the filibuster is merely treating the symptom of the partisanship in, that's uh, in the Senate and not the underlying problem. What did you make of her speech right before President Biden came to Capitol Hill? Well, with all due respect, I've told uh, the senator directly that we have a big disagreement on that. If the filibuster worked to bring people together, then we'd be coming together, right? Because we have it right now. But what we've seen is a perversion of the rules of the Senate. They're now being just used to stop everything and for the Republicans to try to get and keep power. What I support is what the founders originally saw as the filibuster, is let people talk. If you want to try to stop legislation in the United States Senate, stand up, talk, keep talking. And when you have been heard, I mean, the minority has every right to be heard and should be heard. But then when you're done, we should do what Hamilton said and Madison said, which is to allow the majority to make the decision for the country, not the supermajority, the majority. With all due respect, I've been covering the Senate for a long time, and when Democrats are in the minority, that's not how Democrats operate. Well, we should be doing the exact same thing. I mean, the truth of the matter is, over the years, the filibuster has been used more and more in a dilatory way. You can phone it in, Jake, you know that. I don't have to go to the floor to object. I call the cloakroom. And then somebody objects, and then that stops a bill from moving forward, and then it takes 60 votes. That should be reformed so that I can't do that or that other members can't do that either. The truth is that we're now at a point where this has been so eroded and and perverted. I mean, we have the tyranny of the minority, and whether it's Democrats or Republicans, that should stop. And the truth of the matter is, we have never used it as it has been used now. And I think that it makes sense that we move forward in a way where it's a majority of people in the United States, not a supermajority. So it, we're in a United States of America. Constitution says the majority are the ones that decide what happens. Right. But there's also the idea of the Senate being the cooling saucer uh, from, from the, the hot tea uh, of, of the House. But to Senator Sinema's point... Uh, if the rules get changed, she might be concerned, just based on, on uh, reading her statements and, and, and listening to her, that when Republicans take over the majority again, which will happen, you and I know that that sure. will happen at some point, sure. that what, what's to stop them from saying, well, the Democrats got rid of the filibuster for their election reform bills. We're going to get rid of it and pass a nationwide abortion ban. I mean, Jake, isn't you that a know risk? Mitch McConnell. Let me just say this. He will say or do whatever uh, is necessary in terms of a rationale to do what he wants to do. Right. I mean, do you think he would have allowed us truly through the filibuster to stop Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominees from being uh, put on the Supreme Court, whether or not we had changed the rules for I don't know. federal district judges? No, there's no way. There I know that, no way. I know that President Trump pressured McConnell throughout his presidency to get rid of the filibuster, and McConnell didn't. He got, he got rid of the filibuster for the things he wanted to accomplish, which was judges and Supreme Court 
judges. And if he has something else that he wants to accomplish, he will do the same thing, regardless of what we do. I mean, the reality is they're not focused on legislation. I think they would just as soon that we stop some of uh, the more radical things that uh, come out of their side. And so, you know, he will move forward with whatever rationale works. Merrick Garland, hold up a Supreme Court nominee. On the other hand, Amy Coney Barrett, no, 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 there is no need. We can do it right before the election. Mitch McConnell will use whatever rationale works for him at the moment to accomplish his goals. Michigan Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. How will the White House respond to this latest blow from the Supreme Court? The Secretary of Labor will join us live next. Stay with us. Topping our healthly today, the United States Supreme Court today blocking the Biden administration's nationwide vaccine and testing mandate for private businesses of 100 employees or more. However, in a separate case, the court is allowing a mandate to take effect for federally funded health care facilities. Joining us live to discuss the secretary of the Department of Labor, Marty Walsh. Secretary uh, Walsh, thanks for joining us. So the court's decision to block the OSHA mandate, that's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which protects workplace safety is a big blow to the Biden administration. But I'm wondering if you were surprised because it seemed like this was going to be the ruling based on arguments uh, that we heard earlier. Well, what it is, it's disappointing. I mean, it's disappointing the court ruled this way. Uh, It's disappointing the court ruled against workers to keep them protected in America. Uh, As we were putting this together, we talked to medical experts uh, and we talked to legal experts who all said we had the right to do this. Uh, and it's really unfortunate today. And, you know, last week when we heard the real arguments, I and mean, I'm not a lawyer, but certainly uh, the, the arguments that, that, that were put on, on, on your station TV uh, certainly weren't, weren't, uh, weren't the best as far as what, what the justice was saying. Uh, but we, we, we were in court today. So we were in court last week, so we did it. And, and now what we have to do is, is find other ways to make sure that we keep Americans safe. I want to read a quote from the majority opinion, quote, although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, It is not an occupational hazard in most. COVID-19 can and does spread at home, in schools, during sporting events, and everywhere else that people gather. That kind of universal risk is no different from the day-to-day dangers that that all face, from crime, air pollution, or any number of communicable diseases, unquote. They're saying that COVID isn't an occupational hazard for everyone and therefore uh, should not be covered by, uh, by this. You disagree, obviously. Why? Well, I certainly do, because I certainly the intention of what we wanted to do uh, was make sure that people that worked went to work every day uh, that were vaccinated knew that the people around them that weren't vaccinated were going to be tested once a week. And we're also going to be wearing masks and to, to create a safe environment for the workplace. That was the intention behind this. This is not a mandate. Uh, this was certainly well thought through and well thought out. And we said we're going to do a vax and or test. Uh, as we move forward here. And that, that's one of the things we're going to do. And, you know, as I said earlier on a show today, um, you know, the first Friday of the month is Jobs Day and people are going to say, well, what's keeping people out of work? One of the reasons why people aren't going back into the workplace is because they're, they're concerned about their own health. Yeah. Individual employers, of course, can still choose to impose their own in-house vaccine mandate or testing mandate on employees. Many companies like United Airlines have done this. Um, does the Biden administration plan to incentivize uh, in some way to promote that option? 
I wouldn't say incentivize, but we are certainly encouraging companies to do that. And any company that would like our assistance at DOL would love to would be gladly help them, whether it's here at the Department of Labor or with OSHA. Uh, we're going to continue to encourage people. I mean, I think it's really important as we go through uh, the coronavirus and we, the ongoing um, issue around vi the virus. Uh, we're seeing right now with the Omicron variant raising, uh, we're seeing opportunities for people who have the the, the vaccine. Uh, they, they're not get they're not dying. They're getting sick, yeah. but they're they're in better shape. So we just need to continue to encourage people to get vaccinated. So let me let me just ask you: um, the federal government in the past has has made rulings, decisions. We're not going to do businesses uh, with companies that discriminate. Given this ruling, and also the other one that allowed uh, you uh, the, the administration to impose a mandate on on companies that take Medicare and Medicaid dollars. Might you do that uh, and say, if you want to do business with the United States government, you have to have a vaccine mandate? Is that something you're considering? No, we're not. I think t today's ruling was a ruling that, that we, we put a lot of work and em emphasis on talking to medical experts, talking to legal experts. Uh, what we're going to do now, what I'm going to be doing here at the Department of Labor, just like I'm doing right now to you, I'm encouraging companies in America that if you want, if you will take the route of vaccine to, for your employees, and testing and making sure your workplace is safe. If you need help, we, we have all the guidelines and we would love to work with you on that. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Losing a mother, a brother, a troubling uptick in police officers being targeted and killed and the loss they leave behind. Stay with us. In our national lead, 73 U.S. law enforcement officers intentionally killed in the line of duty last year. The FBI says that marks a 20-year high. FBI Director Christopher Wray wrote this sobering opinion in the Wall Street Journal, quote, When I started as FBI director, I made it my practice to call the chief or sheriff of every officer intentionally killed in the line of duty. I have now made more than 200 such calls. Each conversation reminds me that behind the uniform, the badge, and yes, sometimes the flashing lights in your rearview mirror, there are real, real people. As CNN's Josh Campbell reports for us right now, there are also real friends and partners and children left behind. The city of Baltimore is saying goodbye to a police officer and mother of four who authorities believe was shot last month by two people who walked up to her patrol car and opened fire. My sister has always been hardworking, always been determined, and she was able to bring joy to everybody that she touched. Officer Kiana Holly had been on the force for just two years. A remarkable woman who joined the police department um, a little later in life. She wanted to live a life of service. That service also came with danger, which she talked about with her sister. Her faith was bigger than her fear. So no matter how fearful of it she was, she got up every day. Holly's murder is part of a terrible year in policing. Preliminary statistics from the FBI show that 2021 was especially deadly for cops in the United States. With 73 officers killed intentionally in the line of duty, most by gunfire, up from 46 in 2020, and the highest number in 26 years aside from 9-11. It's a problem from coast to coast. In Bradley, Illinois last month, one officer was shot and killed, another badly wounded after responding to a call about barking dogs at a hotel. In Arvada, Colorado, a 19-year veteran officer shot dead in what police called a targeted attack. Those ambush and unprovoked killings specifically are also up. 
totaling 33 last year, the FBI reports, a startling jump from 11 in 2020. Some in law enforcement tell us they believe criminals have been emboldened by disruption to the criminal justice system during the pandemic. Over the past 18 months to two years, many of our grand juries were non-existent. Indictments didn't happen. Uh, trials didn't happen. We know that people felt more emboldened because they didn't see or feel those consequences. Another issue police cite, policy changes that have allowed more people out of jail pending trial. Criminal justice reform advocates say practices like cash bail have long been discriminatory against low-income people and people of color. But some policing advocates insist changes have led to more crime. A lot of it has to do with, with policies in, in cities that are, are clearly making our cities uh, less safe, uh, allowing some of the most violent offenders back on the street to continue to reoffend. The head of the country's largest police union also blames anti-police sentiment in some parts of the nation. It's taken its toll and it's, it's, it's eroding a lack of respect for, for the law enforcement profession. While criminologists say crime is complicated and there are no easy answers to determining the root causes of a rise in certain kinds of violence, including against officers, police say repairing relationships with the community is a must. After a series of high-profile cases where police killed black men and women like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, which sparked nationwide outcries over police use of force. I tell this to every graduating class every class that starts and again when they graduate, to do three things. Build relationships that were never built, improve on good relationships, and then repair broken relationships. One of the recruits up to that task was fallen officer Kiana Holly. Our crime level is so high. In a video recorded while she was still in training, she gave her reason for joining the force. I didn't want to be a Baltimore City police officer before. I feel like Baltimore City police officers have a bad name about themselves, and we have to change that and change it together. Now, the biggest killer of cops last year was COVID-19. Nevertheless, the surge in the number of officers intentionally killed in the line of duty is certainly troubling law enforcement leaders across the country. It's also getting the attention of lawmakers, Jake. For example, uh, Senator Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina, has filed a bill that would make seriously injuring a law enforcement officer a federal crime. Jake. All right, Josh Campbell in Los Angeles for us. Thanks so much. Won the highest honors from Congress given to a boy whose death helped spark the civil rights movement. Stay with us. In our world lead today, Afghanistan is on the brink of total collapse unless the world's leaders step in. That is the message from the United Nations. The UN now launching a $4.4 billion funding appeal to help Afghanistan from sinking into a deeper humanitarian crisis after the Taliban takeover and U.S. withdrawal unra unraveled the economy of the country. Here to discuss is Martin Griffiths. He is the United Nations Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. Martin, thanks for joining us. Medical systems in Afghanistan, as you know, are in dire need of resources. Millions of Afghans face starvation. Explain what the needs are on the ground and what this international assistance could provide. Thank you very much, Jake, for having me on the program. We, we're facing in Afghanistan the biggest humanitarian catastrophe that that benighted country has ever faced. 24 million people out of a total population of just over, uh, just a little more than uh, double that, face hunger this year if we don't manage to step in. And uh, about a million children under five face severe acute malnutrition. Again, the aid doesn't get to them on time. And that's why 
as you said at the beginning, we are launching the world's largest ever humanitarian aid program for Afghanistan, for a country, around $5 billion for this year. But the, the key point that I would like to make here to, your, to, to, to the program is the relationship between that program, between the humanitarian aid and the collapse of the economy. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the vital relationship that exists, and this is what this is the big message that we're trying to put across in meetings tomorrow with Secretary Blinken and others. How is aid being distributed right now under Taliban rule? Uh, it's being distributed with a with effectively a direct to beneficiary arrangement. So there are about 150 humanitarian agencies. The great majority of them local NGOs. And, and national Afghan NGOs who receive funding very generously from your your government, but through the big agencies who fund those NGOs to deliver food support, medical supplies direct to the beneficiaries. You say salaries secu- of... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Sorry, the security in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. of course, is better now than it has been for many years. And so we're able to get out across the country to do that. But the problem that we're facing is that without cash in the economy, you can't pay for the gas to get the fuel to get to to the people. You can't pay salaries of the frontline health workers. Teachers haven't been paid uh, since uh, 15th of August. So it's getting the cash into the economy, which is as important as getting funding into the aid program. And when you talk about that, the salaries of key public sector workers, doctors, nurses, teachers, having not been paid in months, what can the international community do about that? Well, there's, there's a number of things that we're putting on the table tomorrow in Washington. First of all, fund the aid program, because that's the money that will most quickly get to, to, to those beneficiaries. Secondly, reprogram some of the money that was in the World Bank and other assets to uh, put it through, again, aid agencies to get money straight to the beneficiaries. But these are short-term measures. What we're also saying is that to get liquidity into the economy, you need to provide for the support of the local currency, the Afghanis, that needs to be backed up by dollars. Before the 15th of August, the United States had a very, very long-term and detailed support to the banking system. When the US left, that support stopped. Mm -hmm. The banking system hadn't hasn't functioned since. You've got to get the banking system back, jump-started, back uh, to enable us to meet local costs. I assume one of the problems here is the reluctance of of, uh, individuals throughout the world to send anything to Afghanistan that the Taliban could use for violence. How do you guard against that? Uh, It's a very good question, and we're very conscious of the issue. Uh, We're well aware that um, paying public civil servants, public officials, is is not the same as paying Taliban uh, officials and Taliban leaders. It's the same as in in your country or mine. Paying the health service doesn't mean paying the Democrat Party. But we make sure of this through the arrangements that uh, I've described as direct delivery. We pay directly to those who are doing the work and who need the aid. And the job of the aid agency is to, to make sure that that leakage doesn't happen. Martin Griffiths, thank you so much. Thank you for the work you do. Uh, stay in touch so we can continue to shine a light on, on this problem. Thank you very much, Jake.
Thank you. In our national lead, Emmett Lewis Till, the 14-year-old boy savagely beaten and murdered in 1955 by white supremacists in Mississippi, will be awarded the highest civilian honor that Congress can give, a posthumous congressional gold medal. His mother, Mamie Till Mobley, will also get one. She famously decided to have an open casket funeral for her boy because she, quote, wanted the world to see what they did to my baby, unquote. The recognition comes a month after the Justice Department officially closed its investigation into one of the most grisly and horrific murders documented in the Jim Crow era. In our pop culture lead today, she's one of the most iconic actresses of the past century, but underneath the blonde bombshell persona was a complex and powerful and savvy woman who was ahead of her time. This Sunday, a new CNN original series re-examines Marilyn Monroe's life and legacy, including her headline-making marriage to New York Yankees legend Joe DiMaggio. Romance that thrills the world. The marriage of Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio. After two years of dating, Marilyn and Joe's marriage captivates the nation. Just because it began as a publicity stunt doesn't mean that they couldn't have fallen in love and had a real relationship after that. It does seem to have been what happened. He has a very sensitive nature in many respects. When he was young, he had a very difficult time. So he understood some things about me and I understood some things about him. There's no surprise in the fact that it attracted a record crowd to the San Francisco court where the ceremony was performed. There were hundreds of reporters. I think we can assume that Joe didn't tip them off because he hated all that stuff. The story was that actually it was Marilyn who called up the journalist. She recognized that this was an opportunity. Reframed, Marilyn Monroe premieres this Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. Coming up in the Situation Room, my friend Wolf Blitzer will talk to the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Morthy, about the Supreme Court blocking the Biden administration's vaccine mandate. That's right ahead. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.